The following podcast contains mature language and discussions that are not suitable for younger audiences. The opinions voiced in this podcast are our own. We are not experts on the topic we present, but have conducted our own research. Listener discretion is advised. All right, welcome back to the Strange and Undecided podcast. I'm your host, Jarrett, joined by my co-host, Patrick. Welcome, everyone. Welcome, everyone. Hey, before we start this one, I want to clear something up. At the start of uh, our podcast, you have a little disclaimer saying that we have done our research. Uh, this is my disclaimer. I haven't done shit. <laughs> Guys, I just show up here. Most of the time, I don't even know what we're talking about until I sit down. I have not done my research. So if I'm full of shit, I, I apologize. That's okay. That's why I also said in the disclaimer, our opinions are our own. So we've got an interesting topic for you today. We've got a unsolved murder case from 1959. I feel like most things in 1959 went unsolved. Let me guess. Shoddy police work, lazy detectives, the usual. Elements of that for sure. All right, let's get to it. So this is the case of Lynn Harper and Stephen Truscott. June 9th, 1959. A day like any other. Kids playing outside and enjoying the weather. Lynn Harper was one of these kids. However, that day would be the last day she was seen alive by anyone. She disappeared, and two days later she was found dead in a woodlot of a nearby farm. There was no question about it. She had very clearly been murdered. But who killed Lynn Harper? I bet it was Truscott. We'll have to see. Cheryl Lynn Harper, or as she preferred to be called, Lynn, was born in New Brunswick on August 31st, 1946, to Leslie and Shirley Harper. She was the middle child of the family. She had an older sibling, Barry, and a younger sibling, Jeffrey. Her father was a flying officer in the RCAF, or the Royal Canadian Air Force, but prior to 1940, he was a school teacher. In July of 1957, the family moved to Clinton, Ontario, to the RCAF base. A fun fact about Clinton is that it is known as Canada's home of radar, and there is a large radar antenna in the downtown because of its association with the RCAF station Clinton during World War II. Lynn was considered a very energetic kid and was coined a live wire. She was also a girl guide and had an interest in baseball, and as a typical girl, had crushes on boys in her class and also argued with her parents like any kid would. Two months before Lynn's 13th birthday, in the early evening of June 9, 1959, Lynn was sitting on the handlebars of a bike and getting a ride from a boy, 14-year-old Stephen Truscott, Stephen was born in Vancouver, British Columbia on January 18, 1945. His father, Dan Truscott, was a non-commissioned Air Force officer. They arrived at the Clinton Air Force Base a year prior to the arrival of the Harper family. Stephen and Lynn were classmates at the Air Vice Marshal Hugh Campbell School on the Air Force Base. The bike ride proceeded from around the school and went northwards down the county road. What happened next was contended for years to come. Lynn never came home that evening, and her father reported her absence to the station guardhouse somewhere between 10.30 and 11.30 p.m. that night. The Ontario Provincial Police, or the OPP, 
led a search team that consisted of 250 military, civilian, and police, desperately hoping to find Lynn. Two days later, on June 11, 1959, Lynn was found dead and half-naked in an empty woodlot. The woodlot was known to the kids in the area as Lawson's Bush. She had been sexually assaulted and was covered with bruises and cuts. Next to her body were her clothes and shoes placed neatly. Three sticks were also laid across her body, as if to hide it. The autopsy revealed that her cause of death was strangulation and that she had been strangled with her own blouse. Stephen Truscott had been seen giving Lynn a ride on his bike and immediately became the prime suspect. Constable Hobbs took Stephen out of class and questioned him on June 10, 1959, in the back of his police cruiser. The whole time, Stephen maintained that Lynn had sat on his handlebars and he gave her a ride to the intersection of Highway 8 and County Road, which is approximately one kilometer west of town. This is also the location of Lawson's Bush. Stephen said he dropped Lynn off at the intersection unharmed and continued on towards a bridge over Bayfield River. There, he looked back at the intersection and saw what he described as a later model Chevrolet with a yellow license plate that, quote, had a lot of chrome on the car and it could have been a Bel Air version, end quote. This car had stopped on the side of the road and Stephen saw Lynn getting into the vehicle. Okay, so if what Stephen says is true, she clearly trusted the person in the vehicle, either a friend or a family member or something seduced her into there because she wasn't taken by force, according to Stephen here. So we'll see where this goes. No, and that was something actually that was said during the investigation is that she willingly went into this car. She wasn't pulled into the car or anything. She willingly hopped up into the car. So usually in cases like this, that indicates that she knew who that person was or she was very comfortable with that said person. Isn't it true that in most cases of a murder, it's done by somebody close to you? Many times, yeah. Police were not buying his account and determined he was being deceptive. They promptly arrested Stephen for the murder only two days after Lynn had been discovered. The lead investigator who had made the arrest was OPP Inspector Harold Graham. On June 12th, shortly after 7 p.m., Stephen was taken into custody and around 2.30 a.m. on June 13th, Stephen was subsequently charged with first-degree murder under the provisions of the Juvenile Delinquents Act. It was determined during the incredibly short investigation that Stephen would regularly spend time at Lawson's farm to talk, help with chores, or play in the woodlot. This was something that other kids in the area would also do, including Lynn herself. It was not unique to him. The fact that Stephen knew the spot and spent time down there, though, did not win him any favors with the police. Something I'm going to add here as well is that as soon as Stephen became the prime suspect, the police officers stopped investigating other potential leads. A resident of the base, Bob Lawson, had gone to the guardhouse to report seeing a strange car parked near his fence line the night Lynn had disappeared. The car was a convertible and described as possibly being a 1959 Ford. Lawson reported that he and his neighbor, Ross Critch, had seen a man in the driver's seat and what appeared to be a shorter girl beside him in the middle of the seat, but neither of them were recognized. The officer on duty shrugged off this lead, and it was never followed up on. Instead, Lawson was told that a suspect had already been arrested and charged with murder. Hmm, seems like my premonition is coming true of this shoddy police work. 
when I was doing my research on this part, I did not understand why they thought a 14 year old boy right off the bat, like they didn't even consider any other options. They immediately were like, he was seen, case closed, done. Two days later, arrested. Yeah, clearly a very different time though. So cases like this, I don't know the ending yet, but I'm sure it's helped us uh, in future cases of what not to do from the sounds of it already. Absolutely. On June 30th, Stephen was ordered to be tried as an adult despite his young age. An appeal was made on that order and was subsequently dismissed. Stephen's jury trial lasted a total of 15 days. The Crown, also known as the prosecution, their case claimed that Lynn was a careful girl who would never get in a random car. Therefore, the Crown concluded that Stephen sexually assaulted Lynn, strangled her with her blouse, and then covered her with branches to hide her body. One thing, you're 14 years old. You don't have very much experience with the, uh, how much does a 14-year-old know about this kind of stuff? I would say very little because back in 1959, there were much more conservative times compared to now. So most likely, they, I don't think they were teaching sex ed back then at all. Yeah, definitely not. And to like go all out and to sexually assault and strangle somebody and it's probably your first time having like a sexual encounter, it seems a little far-fetched, right? If you're 14 years old, how do you know how to even... I don't know, kill somebody. Usually cases with, say, uh, serial killers, for example, you don't kill on your first crime. You slowly like build up the courage and the know-how of how to commit your crimes and how to get away with it, right? You build up your confidence. You don't kill somebody on your first go. Right. This Truscott thing, I don't know, either he was like a complete psychopath as a 14-year-old kid or we're not on the right lead. We'll see where this goes. The Crown stated, instead of dropping Lynn off as Stephen had claimed to have done, he turned off into the bush and killed Lynn at some point between 7 p.m. and 7.45 p.m. that evening. The police had evidence of bike tire tracks on a trail near her body, and Stephen was seen riding his bike around. A pathologist who performed the autopsy on Lynn, Dr. John Penniston, had testified that Lynn's partially digested stomach contents had revealed that she had died during the time stated before. This evidence would be damning for Stephen as the window of opportunity to kill would be very narrow. It would also rule out that a stranger had picked her up and murdered her instead. Stephen also had a lesion on his penis, which was argued to have been caused from sexually assaulting Lynn. Stephen was supported by witnesses who had conflicting reports of potentially seeing Stephen near the area where Lynn's body was found. The trial contained a number of children who had been playing under the bridge and had seen Stephen and Lynn that evening. The Crown and Stephen's defense would use the testimony of the children to argue their version and the timing of the events. Throughout the entire trial, Stephen maintained his innocence. Several witnesses supported Stephen's version of events, testifying that they had seen Stephen and Lynn riding towards the intersection where Stephen said he had dropped her off, or that they had seen him standing on the bridge looking in her direction. Witnesses also noted that Stephen seemed normal when they saw him on the school grounds later that night at 8pm. No one had seen Stephen entering or leaving the wooded area where Lynn was killed. The uh, people have claimed to see him acting normal. I guess that's kind of a a positive in in his case. Like, how out of your mind would you be if you just killed somebody? 
Oh, you'd be going absolutely insane. I, he wouldn't look normal. No, you wouldn't at all. And they said he looked like perfectly normal. He it's wasn't. A 14-year-old kid doing his thing. Yeah, exactly. I could be wrong, but uh, I have sympathy for this Trescott kid. Plus, he wasn't, uh, nobody said he had like dirt on his clothes or blood or nothing like that. The Crown's investigation never explained how Stephen could have committed the rape and murder. He was never seen out of breath, nor was he drenched in sweat, had any cuts or scratches besides the lesion, or had his clothing messed up in any way. June 9th was a warm night, and if Stephen had been in an altercation with Lynn and dragged her into the bushes, then he would be covered in sweat. Since Lynn was covered in cuts and bruises, she clearly was struggling and fighting back. Nobody noticed anything amiss with Stephen. The defense had an expert in internal medicine testify that the method that Dr. John Penniston used to determine Lynn's time of death, which was an examination of the stomach contents, was not reliable, and that the lesions on Stephen's penis were most likely not caused by sexual intercourse. We now know that stomach content examination is not a reliable or damning piece of evidence in a case and is considered junk science to many. Ultimately, the Crown's case was based purely on this kind of evidence. Despite the defense's efforts, on September 30th, 1959, the jury deliberated for two and a half hours and found Stephen guilty, but recommended the sentence be a merciful one. However, Canada had yet to abolish the death penalty, and according to the Criminal Code of Canada, a death sentence was required for a murder conviction. Stephen Truscott, a 14-year-old boy, was sentenced to death by hanging. Holy shit. 1959, Canada was hanging people? That seems so primitive. That's how they did it. They didn't have... I think some places had the electric chair, but I don't know if particularly this place had access to something like that. So being hanged was the only way to do it. Brutal. Stephen was the youngest person in Canada since 1875 to receive the death sentence. Did you find in your research anything about, like, a psychiatric evaluation? Like on Stephen? Yeah. I don't think they performed one at all. Yeah, they probably never had that kind of expertise back then. They performed like frontal lobotomies and a bunch of uh, nonsensical procedures. I don't think they had a very good understanding of mental health back then. No, not in the slightest. I'm just wondering what Stephen's uh, mindset would have been during this time. I'm going to assume probably absolutely terrified, but also frustrated. Yeah. Was he considered like uh, what we would call, I don't know, criminally in? insane is that a term i think a lot of people get off their charges based on criminal insanity like if they're found criminally insane then they get sent to a psychiatric institute for rehabilitation versus getting sent to prison yeah but something that i found uh in my research that i didn't mention earlier was that uh steven was interrogated for seven hours by the police and for a 14 year old kid in 1959 a seven-hour interrogation. You know how it is with those things. The cops are going to pull out of you what they want to hear. Yeah, exactly. But he stayed strong throughout the whole thing and maintained his innocence. Mm -hmm. And they still said, screw you, you're going to prison, you're lying to us. Yeah. We don't believe you. Back then, did they have like recordings of interrogations? No. So pretty much the police can just make up whatever they want. Technically speaking, as they shouldn't because we trust them and they should be doing the right thing. But do you think police were more trustworthy back then or less? That's really hard to say. In, in terms of moral conduct. <sighs> uh, that's I have no idea. I could say it'd probably be the exact same as now, but it probably seems worse back then because there's less evidence. Evidence. And there's most, no body cams. Yeah, there's no body cams. There's no 
like they're very limited in their actual forensic evidence in terms of like the forensic evidence, like DNA that didn't come till well, well, well later, which we'll discuss later. It's interesting that they were so dead set on it being him and they wanted to close the case as fast as possible. Do you think they were well-intentioned or they were just trying to close the case as fast as possible? It seemed like they were trying to close the case as fast as possible, which is really sad. Could be a cover-up. Could be. Stephen appealed his conviction to the Ontario Court of Appeals, but the court unanimously dismissed his appeal on January 20th, 1960. Stephen then applied to the Supreme Court of Canada to appeal his conviction. On February 24th of the same year, that's 1960, the court also dismissed his application for an appeal. The death sentence of Stephen Truscott actually shocked the John Diefenbaker government so much that one year later they commuted Stephen's sentence to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 10 years. Stephen was therefore able to continue fighting for justice for several decades rather than being executed for a crime he did not commit. At least several decades in, you can at least mature in terms of your mental capacity and you can fight for yourself a little bit more as an adult. Absolutely. Stephen's case was the focus of considerable public attention. In early 1966, Isabelle Le Bourdais published a book called The Trial of Stephen Truscott and wrote how Stephen had been convicted of a crime he did not commit and how terrible the police investigation and trial was to him. This would end up bringing Stephen's case back into the public eye, and interest grew again. On April 26, 1966, the government of Canada referred Stephen's case to the Supreme Court of Canada. For five days, evidence was presented to the Supreme Court of Canada, and this occurred in October of 1966. There were also later submissions in January of 1967. The evidence included Stephen's testimony for the first time, as he was not allowed to testify in 1959 at his own trial. British pathologist Professor Keith Simpson was requested to examine the forensic evidence by the Canadian government. On May 4, 1967, the Supreme Court concluded that if Stephen's appeal had been heard by the court, his case would have been dismissed. Stephen was able to tell his side of the story and testify before the Supreme Court of Canada, accompanied by new forensic evidence that was presented on his behalf. 25 witnesses were called to the stand to testify before the court as well. The hearing lasted two weeks, and Canada's top judges ruled 8-1 to one against Stephen getting a new trial. Devastated, he was returned to prison to serve the remainder of his sentence. The Supreme Court stated, There were many incredibilities inherent in the evidence given by Truscott before us, and we do not believe his testimony. The conclusion of Canada's Supreme Court justices was, the verdict of the jury, read in the light of the charge of the trial judge, makes it clear that they were satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that the facts, which they found to be established by the evidence which they accepted, were not only consistent with the guilt of Truscott, but were inconsistent with any rational conclusion other than that Stephen Truscott was the guilty person. Stephen's time behind bars occurred first at the Ontario Training School for Boys in Guelph. When he turned 18, he was moved to the Collins Bay Penitentiary in Kingston and stayed there until his parole date on October 21, 1969. Stephen was released at the age of 24. He moved to Guelph, changed his name to Stephen Bowers, and worked as a millwright, a craft he had learned in prison. All the while, he lived in the shadow of his conviction a decade prior. Only people close to him knew his true identity. 
And in October of 1970, he got married to a woman named Marlene and they raised three children together. He changed his name to Stephen Bowers. Yes. What did this come to light that we knew his new name? Did people know who this guy was? Only people close to him knew his true identity. Mm -hmm. So he got married. Marlene's got a big heart. Yep. She fought for him. The Association in Defense of the Wrongly Convicted, or AIDWIC, now known as Innocence Canada, became involved in Stephen's case in 1997 when AIDWIC and journalists from CBC's The Fifth Estate traveled to Stephen's home in Guelph. After being interviewed, Stephen asked them to search for new evidence that would free him of his past conviction and prove his innocence. So the CBC, they knew who he was, even though he had a new identity. How do they track him down? That's a great question. I do not know. I think people know of the case and they were trying to help him. So they're able to get information on him and find out like where he actually lived and what alias he went under. That's my assumption anyways, because they can't hide people if they're trying to help them. Like if Aidwick is purposefully going out to try to help people with wrong convictions, they can't be suppressed that kind of information. Like, hey, I'm trying to help this guy. Where can I find him? The government can't be like, that's up for you to find out. Mm -hmm. According to Section 690 of the Criminal Code of Canada, Stephen would have to apply to have his case reviewed and referred for a retrial. The Department of Justice needed to be satisfied that new evidence in the case would be presented and that the evidence had to affect the outcome of the retrial. Do you think uh, Truscott had any limitations to his rights in Canada after he was released? Like, why does he want a retrial? Just for moral purposes, just to prove I'm innocent. Well, that all happened with the uh, interview he had. I think that uh, he had already like let it go. And in subsequent interviews after everything was finished, he basically said that he lived long enough and he didn't harbor any hate towards it. It was just something that he had to deal with in his life and get over. So I think at that point, he was not wanting to prove his innocence until they came to him saying, hey, this is what we can do for you. Would you like us to do it? And he said, yes. I want my innocence proven because I am innocent. Yeah, clearly by this time, people have figured out his identity and people are probably harassing him. So it's probably just for to prove the haters wrong. I didn't find any research that specifically said he had people like harassing him on a regular basis or anything. I think he lived a, like a fairly quiet life, but just always lived with the knowledge that he was wrongfully convicted. He forgave, but didn't forget. Or maybe he just wants uh, justice to be done to prevent this from happening in the future. Absolutely. I definitely would agree with that. After a thorough investigation by Edwick lawyers, they eventually obtained over 3,000 pages of material that had previously not been disclosed to Stephen's defense team. Oh, fuck. They were able to provide a compilation of this material that contained evidence that hadn't been investigated or had purposefully been withheld from the defense. Must have had a hell of a good hiding place for 3,000 pages. Some of the withheld evidence was the Crown neglecting to give the defense evidence that supported Stevens' claim that he was on the bridge and left Lynn back at the intersection of Highway 8 and County Road. The lawyers were also able to obtain a police report that had previously been undisclosed as well. The report stated that the bike tire tracks on the trail near Lynn's body were most likely left there a week prior to Lynn being murdered. This rendered the evidence meaningless even though they used it in Stevens' original trial. Probably the most shocking evidence of all was a letter written to the lead investigator of the case in 1959, Harold Graham. The sender of this letter was none other than the pathologist asked to testify in Stephen's trial in 1959, Dr. John Penniston. 
This letter was sent on the eve of Stephen's 1966 Supreme Court of Canada appeal. The letter stated that Penniston made an agonizing reprisal of his testimony at the Truscott trial and concluded that he should not have supplied such a narrow window of time opportunity. This letter had never been disclosed to the defense. Prosecutions not disclosing information that could have helped Stephen was not illegal under rules and conventions that existed back in 1959. Another piece of evidence withheld by the police was that of an elderly couple who had told investigators that they had seen a young girl hitchhiking. They had seen this girl around the spot Stephen had claimed to have dropped off Lynn. This was also close to the time he stated originally. Entomologists, who are basically insect specialists, were called to testify and were able to demonstrate through the life stages of fly larvae that the original time of death was inaccurate further proving Stephen's lack of involvement in Lynn's murder. So I guess back during 1959, they actually photographed around the body and that you could see like the larvae of flies in the area. And they were able to compare those flies to their own studies and determine an actual, more accurate time of death. Yeah, there's a cool book I read uh, relating to that type of research called The Body Farm. So it's literally a forensic institution where they do research on bugs and decomposing bodies. They have bodies laid out in all sorts of different debris, like sand, water, mud, like different temperatures and this and that, like real human bodies. So you can donate your body to research and just to let it decompose in like a field somewhere so people can, uh, you know, figure out this stuff for the, the greater good. Yeah, when I was doing my master's, we had to watch a bunch of presentations from other like PhD students and master's students. One of those presentations was a forensic presentation and the girl that did it went to Australia and I guess they have body farms out there and she was actually able to work with the bodies or like work alongside people who are actually trained to deal with the bodies and she was able to actually study like rates of decomposition out there, different insect involvement and stuff like that. She took a lot of pictures so I could actually see a lot of the stuff which is pretty disturbing. It's a career you didn't know that existed. Exactly. But we're glad that somebody does it. How else would we know? The full article is published in the Forensic Science Journal and can be found readily on PubMed. I will include it in the show notes for those of you who are interested in reading the full thing. Retired OPP officer Harry, or Hank, Sayu was questioned as well. Hank worked alongside Inspector Harold Graham. He was asked, did the thought ever cross your mind that for someone to strangle her than sexually assault her, you might want to be looking for someone who is more of a pervert, more of a sexual psychopath? That was my point. He replied, I don't recall that. He's also 84. He just forgot. I feel like that was a shit answer. In November of 2001, Stephen's appeal was filed, and in January, the federal government appointed Justice Fred Kaufman to review the case. Almost five years later, on June 19, 2006, an appeal of Stevens' conviction was heard by the Court of Appeals and a five-judge panel. This was headed by Ontario Chief Justice Roy McMurdy. Finally, on August 28, 2007, Stephen was formally acquitted of the charges. Stephen was hoping to be publicly announced as innocent. However, no declaration of his innocence was made. This means that he is still legally a suspect in the murder of Lynn Harper. The Attorney General of Ontario at the time, Michael Bryant, officially apologized to Stephen shortly afterwards on behalf of the Ontario government for a miscarriage of justice. The Attorney General also made it clear that the Crown would not be appealing Stephen's acquittal. 
Lynn Harper's family wasn't too pleased about the acquittal, as they never thought Stephen was innocent. Almost a year after the acquittal, the Ontario government ended up paying Stephen Truscott $6.5 million for suffering a miscarriage of justice and living for 48 years with the stigma of being wrongfully convicted of a rape and murder that he did not commit. The Truscott family made a statement, Although we are grateful for the freedom and stability this award will provide, we are also painfully aware that no amount of money could ever truly compensate Stephen for the terror of being sentenced to hang at the age of 14, the loss of his youth, or the stigma of living for almost 50 years as a convicted murderer. In July of 2008, Harper's brother described Truscott's $6.5 million compensation package as a real travesty. Yeah, no doubt when you put it like that, that he had to carry over his head that they were going to hang him at 14 years old. Pretty disturbing. I can't even begin to imagine what that would be like, knowing that you are going to die. You probably wouldn't feel very welcomed in your country after that. No. Like my, my people were going to hang me for something I didn't do. And how do you live a normal life after that? Well, he was able to do it. He's a very, he's a very strong individual because in subsequent interviews, he basically said that he doesn't harbor any harsh feelings towards anyone and that he's kind of just let this go and lived his life. Yeah, it's truly uh, something we can admire. Obviously, it seems Stephen was a victim and he was able to gain his life back. But for Lynn Harper, she was not so fortunate. Her case to this day is still unsolved and the family has to live with that. However, there have been speculations as to potential suspects over the years. One such suggestion comes from a retired OPP officer who believes there is a credible suspect for the murder. OPP Sergeant Barry Rule had suspicions of a man he refers to as Larry Talbot, who is dead now. And this is all written in his book, A Viable Suspect. Rule stated, When I was doing up the report on him to ask for surveillance, I was talking to a guy that worked with him and took over his position where he worked as a salesman. He added that part of Talbot's sales route included the town of Clinton, where Lynn Harper was murdered in 1959. Rule referred to Stephen's statement to police investigators back in 1959. When he recalled seeing Lynn getting into a later model Chevrolet with lots of chrome on it, Talbot drove a 1957 Chevrolet at the time with a lot of chrome on it. Rule said, This guy was a traveling salesman, and he was a bad man. He was traveling the highways of Ontario, not surveilled, and we know almost with a certainty that he killed Dudley. He's referring in this case to the murder of 17-year-old Pauline Ivy Dudley, which was a murder case from the Halton Oakville area in 1973 where Talbot was the prime suspect and the MO was very similar to the Harper homicide. But he was never convicted for that? He was a suspect, but he was never convicted. Not only was this a crucial piece of evidence in Rule's mind, but there was evidence of a shoe print at the scene of Lynn's murder. This shoe print matched the size of Talbot's foot, and a sample of type A blood was apparently taken from the scene and Talbot had type A blood. At both Lynn's and Pauline's murders, there was evidence of a neat freak being the murderer. In both cases, the culprit placed some of the victim's belongings, shoes in this case specifically, very neatly next to the body. It was also found in later years when Talbot was investigated for unrelated crimes that he had a rape kit in the trunk of his car. What is that? It consisted of bindings like tape and rope, a knife, a mask. Another suspect for the murder who stands out is Alexander Kalachuk. 
He was an RCAF sergeant and served during World War II. He was known to be a heavy drinker and had previous convictions for sexual offenses involving young girls. He was stationed at RCAF Clinton until 1957 and was transferred to RCAF Elmer. However, he made regular trips back to Clinton where Lynn's father was the senior supply officer, so they had run-ins. Kalachuk worked in the Clinton area at the time of Lynn's murder. Three weeks before Lynn's murder, Kalachuk was arrested and charged for trying to lure three young girls into his car just outside of St. Thomas, Ontario. All he got was a slap on the wrist saying, don't do that again, and his charges were dismissed. Three weeks after the murder of Lynn, Kalachuk was hospitalized due to, quote, overwhelming anxiety, tension, depression, and guilt, as reported in RCAF documents. Somehow, Kalachuk was able to stay off the police radar as a viable suspect in Lynn's death. In 1975, he ended up drinking himself to death. His final days were spent in a psychiatric institute in Godrich, Ontario. Sadly enough, the murder of Lynn Harper will likely never be solved. From an article in the Godrich Signal Star, the most enduring tragedy of the Harper-Truscott case is that there will be no closure for the Harper family. There are no websites or organizations demanding justice for Lynn Harper. There is no monetary settlement for the Harper family to compensate for their half-century of suffering. That, in the end, is the ultimate tragedy. That is a tragedy indeed. And that is the story of Lynn Harper and Stephen Truscott. It wasn't a happy story. No, it was very aggravating. When I was doing my research, I was pretty angry with the lack of investigation elsewhere into people who were actually suspects, not a 14-year-old boy who was trying to give her a ride. No doubt. The only consolation in this story is that Truscott was uh, relieved of the death penalty. Yeah, for sure. Because if they killed him and then found out years later, actually, I don't even think anything would have happened if they killed him at the time. That would have been it. Because he wouldn't have been there to fight for himself after that, obviously. No, because the only people who actually came to help him was the Aidwick lawyers and the Fifth Estate interview. That's what sparked his retrial, basically, where he was acquitted of his conviction. In recent years with like uh, new forensic technologies, have they been able to find any evidence? on like her body or anything? I believe it was back in 2006 or 2007. Forgive me if I'm wrong about the date, but they did end up actually exhuming her body from her grave, but it'd been so long. So they weren't able to find any actual DNA or forensic evidence that was anything of value that it, that they didn't have already. So they tried. That was in 07. They probably could have done it sooner and maybe have gotten some viable evidence. Right, so overall... How do you feel about this case? Was it what you expected? Because you pretty much said it in the beginning, shoddy police work, which in this case, it really seemed like that to me. Yeah, clearly with the uh, two or three suspects that we discussed in the end, they were never followed up on whatsoever. I would chalk that down to shoddy police work. Yeah, it's just really aggravating to see that because a 14-year-old kid and he was so heavily focused on by the police. And actually something I didn't mention before, in terms of the testimony, I believe I read somewhere that it was like something like 60 kids actually testified in court. But like how reliable are kids in the first place? Like kids don't remember what they ate for breakfast the previous day, let alone what they saw or might may or may not have seen. Like for example, um, there are a bunch of older kids, I think they're around the ages of 12 to 14, around the same age as Stephen at the time. 
1959. And these kids told police, yeah, we saw Stephen on the bridge and we saw basically him standing there and he wasn't with Lynn. And she was like way back there in the intersection. And the police were like, oh, we don't like that. We don't, you, you guys are friends of Stephen's. We don't think you're actually telling the truth. You're just trying to help your friend out. But they believed a 10-year-old boy saying that he never saw Stephen on the road whatsoever. So they believe one kid over a bunch of kids. This one kid supported their theory that Stephen was in the woods killing her at the time he had already said. But these other kids that actually saw him, they were like, it doesn't support our theory. So you guys are... Just dismissed their you're just completely. Dis- exactly. Which is so aggravating. Yeah. A bunch of these kids' testimony was not consistent. It was all over the place. Some saw him, some didn't. Their stories changed. They weren't very reliable, but they took what they needed from the kids that they needed, essentially, mm-hmm. which is very aggravating. And they picked and poked and cherry-picked what helped them, not what was the truth. Yeah. Regardless of whatever eyewitness testimony, kids or adults or truth or not truth or whatever, I think we now know how unreliable eyewitness testimony is. Absolutely. Regardless of who you are, kids or adults, or right? All right, that's going to end our show tonight. If anyone wants to get in contact with us or you have any ideas for the show, please email us at strangeandundecided at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. And good night.